Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Innovation is critical to economic growth and technological progress. So if we want more growth, we should do everything possible to promote innovation. My guest today is John Van Rienen, and he argues the U.S. should boost innovation by increasing public support for research and development and what he calls a Grand Innovation Challenge Fund, which he would finance to the tune of about a trillion dollars over 10 years. John is the Gordon Wide Billard Professor in Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management and Economics, as well as a Professor of Applied Economics at MIT's Department of Economics. He recently co-authored a Hamilton Project Policy Proposal, Innovation Policies to Boost Productivity. John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Let's start out very simply. What is the problem that you are trying to solve here with your idea? Well, there are, I guess, twin problems, I guess. So the, the, the big picture problem is that even before the COVID pandemic, uh, America was suffering from a kind of productivity growth problem. So productivity growth had slowed down since the uh, Great Recession. And, you know, productivity growth in the long run is the key to having sustainable wage growth. So if you want to get better wages, you need better productivity. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem is that, you know, there's a group of challenges, innovation challenges, big challenges facing the U.S. and, and all major countries around the world related to obviously health with the pandemic, but also relating to environment like climate change, strategic questions. So these twin problems, the problem of low productivity growth and the problem of um, environmental health missions and challenges are the, are the problems that I think uh, I want to tackle here with my proposal. Um, so what is your explanation then for our historically weak productivity growth? If 1973 was the end of a productivity boom, why did we see the downshift? Yeah, well, I don't think there's, I think we know for sure exactly all the reasons why why this has happened. I mean, there's a there's a number of different, you know, possibilities out there that, you know, people have discussed that, for example, you know, there was a lot of rebuilding after the Second World War, which gave a big productivity boost and that kind of ran out of steam. The mid-70s, you had the oil shocks, which is also a, you know, a negative, a negative effect. I think there's a kind of long run um, problem uh, if you look at the um, productivity growth in the US that, you know, we've increased our, our kind of investment in R&D, which is you know, one of the factors we'll talk about as a kind of key factor in increasing productivity growth. But the return that we're getting for the R&D doesn't seem to be as great as it was in the past. So people are worried that maybe the you know, we, we still spend hanging. a lot of money. We, we're spending a lot of money every year on R and D. We right? are. I mean, we, we spend about you know two point eight percent of our uh, GDP or something on R and D. But what are the and of course as GDP goes up, that amount goes up. But if you look at the composition of that R and D, where it goes, then there's been a big shift. Um, federal uh, R and D, so the amount of uh, money which the the kind of federal government spends has decreased a lot. So in the mid-60s, we were running at about 1.9%. I 
And today that's down to about 0.7% of GDP. So what's happened is that uh, business R&D, you know, private, private sector R&D has increased, which is good. But the kind of concern is that a lot of federal R&D is the kind of going towards the basic <coughs> type of R&D, the kind of R&D which creates a lot of what economists call spillovers to the rest of the economy. And some of the kind of business R&D is, is more near market. So it has a value for the business itself, but may not create as, as, as many spillovers to the rest of the economy. So one of the kind of concerns is that that kind of fall of um, federal R&D, of, of basic R&D, is one of the reasons why we're not getting so much, so much of a bang for the overall R&D buck. Right. Uh, so we recently had Dietrich Volrath on the podcast, and he was completely unconcerned about weaker productivity growth. He thinks it's happening because of a shift in the economy from manufacturing to services. And it's just like a lot harder to improve the efficiency of a service than to produce a product. I assume you think slow productivity growth is a problem. So what is wrong or incomplete about his view? Uh, well, yeah, I didn't listen to the podcast. Maybe I should have. Uh, I mean, he could be saying different things. So one is he could be saying that, well, you know, real productivity growth is increasing, real GDP is increasing, but we're not measuring it properly. So because the economy has shifted into services or other, other things where it's hard to measure, we're, we're getting this, um, you know, real productivity, but it's not actually being measured properly. So that's one argument. He could be saying either the argument that we, we shouldn't care if, um, you know, the, 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 the real consumption or real growth of the economy is going up. It seems a bit weird. I mean, uh, you know, I think you could say that, we're, you know, we're not measuring things properly. Maybe quality is improving faster than, than we do. You know, there's lots of free goods. So that, that's a completely legitimate argument. I think that's probably where he's coming from. And there's a lot of truth in that. So yeah. I think, well, it's just that we, you know, we have this uh, we shift. In the, we have this. We have this shift in the service sector work, which inherently tends to have lower productivity growth. And if more of the economy is that, then it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be shocking uh, that that there's lower productivity growth overall. It's not necessarily we're doing anything wrong. In fact, we might be doing something right if that's if that's the kind of economy we want. Um, well, that would be an economy in which you had you know, slower wage growth, slow increases of people's incomes, less money to spend on, on kind of health. I mean, that, you know, I, 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 you know, I suppose you, I mean, you might say, well, you know, we're in decline, but it's inevitable. There's nothing we can do about it. That's, that's just life. That's a, a view. I, I don't share that view. I don't think we should be so pessimistic to say, well, there's nothing we can, we can, we can, we can do about those things. And, you know, if you look at a lot of part of the service economy, uh, if you look at kind of you know Amazon or Google or Walmart, they're all parts of the service economy. They 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 have actually had periods where they've had you know very strong productivity growth. So you know in the late nineties, there was a lot of productivity growth happening in uh, in the retail sector as they were using IC you know, information technology very intensively. So I, I don't think that uh, it's inevitable that we should that we have to have low productivity growth in parts of the service sector. I think the problem is measuring it properly. So, you know, we may not be, you know, measuring the uh, innovations that are created in parts of the service sector as well as we do in the manufacturing sector. Um, and I think there's, you know, as I said, there's some truth in that. But I think that the, the decline, uh, even when you correct for all those measurement problems, you try and do things about them, you still see some decline of, of, of productivity growth. I mean, that especially since the Great Recession, it's hard to believe that those measurement problems got so much worse around, you know, 
2008. That, For sure. That's what so I think there's some element of that, um, but I, I don't think that's the whole story. I, nor do I think that, you know, we can sit back and be, maybe we could sit back and be relaxed and say there's nothing we can do about it. But I, I personally think that's too pessimistic. And you know, I think that right. there are things we can do. And, you know, I think there are ways that we can you know, reinvigorate uh, the economy so we can get decent wage growth again. Okay, so you're saying that spending on R&D is not all the same. So what does the mix of government spending on research look like, and how do you want to change it, if at all? Well, I think my, you know, my main proposal is that we should think about, um, you know, have an ambition to uh, increase the amount of um, resources that we give towards innovation and towards R&D. Um, not to go all the way back to where things were in the, in the mid 60s, but to, you know, to raise it by, have an ambition to raise it by about a half a percentage points of, of uh, GDP. It's about, about $100 billion a year. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, my, I, I don't think that all that should you know, be spent in the same way. So I think that the way to think about this is to look at the evidence of what types of innovation policies are, are most effective in, um, you know, raising innovation. And so, you know, in my in my proposal, you know, I, I kind of give some indications about the types of policies we know which uh, have had an impact. So, you know, part of this may actually be changing the, the tax system uh, in order to provide bigger incentives to innovate. So, you know, the U.S. under Ronald Reagan, we introduced uh, uh, our research and experimentation tax credit in uh, in the early 1980s, and there's a lot of evidence that this was, you know, successful in raising. Uh, R&D and indeed innovation for many firms. So I think that that's one uh, pot of money which could be improved and expanded. There's also direct grants, which uh, direct you know, grants which go to uh, different companies, like um, for example the Small uh, Small Business Innovation uh, Research Fund. Um, that's a kind of federal program um, focusing on smaller businesses. And there's some you know great evidence out there that uh, that has been effective in raising uh, R&D, crowding and venture capital funding for many small, small, small enterprises uh, in, in, the, in the energy uh, department, for example. So, that's, so some, you know, of these grants would go, some of these grants would go to companies. Go to yeah, business. absolutely. So yeah, would, 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 is, would Google get a grant? Would Google and uh, you know, Amazon or I don't know, Intel? I mean, would, would, would big companies get grants too? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, the R&D tax credit, and, you know, in fact, uh, a lot of that does go towards um, large. But would they, would they get these direct? But would they get these direct grants? Um, I think you know. You, we, I mean, the uh, stepping back, and there's a lot of details about how you decide how the grants are allocated. So I'm not going to say that company X should get the grant and somebody right. Y shouldn't get the grants. I think you need to, you know, part of this is setting up a system for allocating grants based on different criteria. And, you know, if a company who applies for that fulfills that criteria, then, you know, by all means, that company can get the grant. So, yeah, and the grants would be to do what? I mean, they would have to say, what would be, what kind of thing would they say we want to do a very basic research or we have an idea that's not really basic, but it's a little further along and we want money for that? What, what, well, I, I think what, yeah, the, what kind of principles, the, the kind of principles that we want to think is that, yeah, we want to try and think about funding uh, types of research which create these kind of spillovers, which are kind of uh, things which benefit not just the firm itself, but potentially other firms. We should also think about these kind of challenges, which, um, you know, the economy faces as a whole. So, you know, we faced you know, health, health challenges around, you know, pandemics and viruses. Uh, we face challenges around, um, 
you know, environmental things like pollution and climate change. We face a number of other different challenges, strategic and military challenges, um, you know, thinking about what's happening with China. So there's a, there's a set of priorities which are set by people and politicians. And then there's a question of, you know, in terms of who can best meet those challenges, um, companies can, like they do for, say, you know, different types of funds can bid for those. And then there has to be a way of allocating. And, you know, the principles of allocation should be that the allocation is based on um, having agencies which are not just, you know, um, you know, controlled by politicians who are trying to give out the money to leave in the local area. But people who are kind of uh, more independent from, uh, from from the from the from the government to do that. Right. So and it so should the, be evaluated very rigorously to make sure that we're getting good value for money for those things. You know, and, and right. we there's lots of programs which which try to do that in a in a kind of in a kind of robust way. Nothing is perfect, but I think there's ways of doing that to kind of reduce some of the risks. The obvious risks are, you know, these become things which become captured by the people are getting the money or captured by the politicians. We have to do a lot of things to try and shield that. You know, and you think about the way that NIH or um, you know, different type of agencies do deliver our money and stuff that is off. Would is like the NIH and the National Science Foundation, I mean, would they, I mean, would they be getting this money? Would they be directing where this money would go? What would be their, the, what I would think, be the roles think, in like the existing infrastructure? So I think you probably need to, I mean, to do two things. So one is that, you know, this- Or is help. it a new agency? I don't know. Well, I think there's, there's, there's two things. One is you would you would have more funds for some of these uh, existing agencies. But I think if we really went big on this, we could think about you know setting up a, a larger new agency to deliver some of these the, you know the, the, these funds built on some of the principles that exist in in some of the current agencies. So there's difference. I mean, I you know I I I'm not I don't want to be too directive in saying exactly how to do this, but there is um, you know a set of proposals out there by, for example. Uh, uh, my colleagues at MIT, Simon Johnson and John Gruber, who uh, you Professor know, Gruber's been on the podcast. Oh well, he you know you know you know what he's proposing then. <laughs> so uh, I, I he's actually he's actually the, setting up for a, a, yeah. a new agency. Yeah, he's actually setting up a, a new agency to actually try and deliver some of the money. And one one of the things that he emphasizes with Simon is that in terms of who gets the money, we should think about the places which get the money. So there's a kind of risk that if you have a lot of money, it just goes to the same old subject. I mean, of course, you know, goes to MIT, to Stanford, to the kind of coasts. And I, you know, I think that that's, I actually personally think that it would be a mistake to have all the money being directed into those kind of places. One, because they're very expensive. And two, because in order to make this thing politically sustainable, you have to actually also get buy-in for many of the places who are not, not, not currently major hubs of technology, but potentially could be hubs. So places which have a good educational basis, um, you know, so there's a possibility of using uh, people who are educated, have some kind of possibility of using this money well, but also maybe are not as expensive as some of the, you know, the places in, in, in the coasts uh, where the, you know, the main funds often yeah. go to. So I think that, I mean, that it's, it's really that part of it. Yeah. It's, really, that's, it's really that part of it that kind of uh, worries me. It seems like we're accepting some inefficiency and wasted spending by spreading the money around just so we can get the political support for spending any more money on R&D. Yeah, I mean, it's so in my proposal, I don't um, I'm not advocating this place based approach that Simon and uh, John are doing because I, I share some of your worries, to be honest. Which However, seems amazingly bureaucratic because they have like a 93 point you know, criteria plan 
uh, to figure out which community. I'm exaggerating, but which communities. And it all, it all see. It, it all seems like I, I think they have they have two yeah. they have two basic principles. I think one is that you need to have you know a certain level of education. So you know, you, you know if, you, if if there's not enough people who have you know college educated degrees, then it's going to be difficult to really get something going. But they also have the criteria that they don't want it to be too expensive. So the house prices have to be below a certain level. So that, those are the two main criteria. But I agree. I mean, you know, there is there, you know you what you've got to kind of have a balance between not having it too bureaucratic but having something that you know is politically sustainable so i you know i the economics which i feel most comfortable with and i think you know you mm -hmm. probably do as well which is to say that you know we have these pressing needs there's good evidence that some innovation policies work the private sector left of itself is not going to produce enough of it so that creates a good economic argument then we get into the kind of nitty-gritty detail of how we're actually going to do it and do we need to make some compromises in order to make it politically sustainable. And you know, I, I think as, as economists, I also get nervous, but I, I think we've got to be realistic about this. If we're gonna spend large amounts of money, then we have to have to do it in a way which makes it um, not just economically sensible, but polit you know, politically sensible. Well, no, I, I, it's, a, it's a balance between sort of what is your optimal ideal policy versus, you know, you have to at least give some, you know, some, some focus on, Make you know on it, it actually you know happening and what are sort of the political, uh, you know the political Im implications. Um, the the part about the mission oriented policies. Now, I know you've you know you've done other work and I uh, on sort of innovation policy uh, toolkits and I, I I have a chart in front of me and a chart I've blogged about many times in which you list like twelve policies. I think this is from the paper you did with Nick Bloom. Oh yes. And, yeah. And you're talking uh, I, about I, the, the light bulb, the light bulb table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the light bulb table. So on this table, mission oriented policies are rated one out of three light bulbs for net benefit with low quality of evidence and low conclusiveness of the evidence. So it seems like this is not an optimal policy, but you're including it because we need this research in order to handle pressing problems like climate change and public health. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the idea. I mean, the productivity stuff we've discussed is pretty is pretty is pretty clear. But there are other other things like you know environmental challenges and health challenges which we'd want to deal with anyway. And the fact is, none of these challenges. You know, think about you know whatever you, you think about climate change. You know, there is an issue. And it's not going to be solved as much as you know me and other economists would love it to be the case by just you know having the right level of carbon tax or the right level of regulation. We need innovation mm -hmm. to, sure. to deal with that problem. We need you know technological change. So you know if we need that technological change to deal with those type of problems, then you know that is something we need. You know we, we need a period. <laughs> so how do we then get that? Well, you know there's these other policies which you know we know work in uh, other circumstances that we can uh, we can can leverage so i think that you know the way I, I i see this is that okay we we decide what we need and maybe that's beating the chinese at artificial intelligence maybe it's not climate change that's a, a need we have from other reasons how do we how do we make that happen you know what kind of innovation policies are going to make that happen and the other innovation policies are the other ones in the light bulb table you know the r d tax credits the direct grants the trying to get more people to study stem the trying to get you know to deal with the fact that we have our, you know, many potential smart people and kids are not becoming inventors who could become inventors if they got the opportunity. So those type of policies, I think, are you know, ways we could actually improve the kind of innovation pipeline to deal with the kind of you know, 
rural missions that we need to, 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 to tackle. So are you proposing a form of industrial policy where the government plays favorites with certain technologies and companies? Uh, I know this phrase is sort of coming back into vogue, but I don't like it. It worries me. <laughs> it worries uh, me. All economists, all economists, you know, it's like you hear the word industrial policy and it's a reach your revolver or something. It's like, right, right. <laughs> you know, we, have, we have an instinctive reaction against it. Look, there is an element of industrial policy, which is, is, is you know, I, in my view, a total failure. And we can see that from, you know, what's happened in, you know, in, you know, in my own home country, you know, where I was born in Britain. Um, you know, in the 1970s was a, you know, attempt to create these kind of national champions like British Leyland, the car company was total failures. Mm. And, you know, you know, you see this in France, you see many other countries. And, you know, the reason that those failed was that, you know, we tried to erect lots of, you know, reductions of competition and barriers to protect those companies. That's, you know, again, if you look at our light bulb table, you know, a good, a good innovation policy is actually to increase competition. That's what one of the, the, the strong that's ways. A, that's, a, that's a three light, it's a maximum three light yeah, bulb. Yeah, we, we, we had a three light bulb for that. <laughs> um, so I think that is, you know, the, the traditional industrial policy, which is about picking winners and, and protection is, 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 I think, is discredited. But I think there are some elements of having, you know, an idea that you can have missions um, where there are these things that we, you know, we have a pressing need for. And we can try and, uh, you know, create a role for the state in trying to meet those needs uh, does have some, uh, you know, some credibility to it. So if we can you know, identify where the market failures are, like there's market failure for innovation, we can look at the evidence over what works and what doesn't work, and we can kind of set up institutions which can try and um, direct the money to where it can be useful without saying we all, you know, we're all going to be picking the winners. We set the criteria for what firms or what uh, actors could, uh, what we want them to do. That I think is part of a kind of a strategy which can be, you know, beneficial for innovation well, and growth. I mean, like the, uh, so I think you want right. to you want to pick out some of the. Uh, uh, you want to call it if you want to call that innovation strategy, then fine. You know, you know. Uh, but I mean, if you the idea really is to say, well, there's parts of the traditional industrial strategy are clearly wrong, but there's parts of it which is to say, you know, there is a role for you know the government in trying to. Um, you know, improve the the economy if if you can define those things well and get the institution. Let, let me give, let me just give it here. Let's say let's say you had a company, and it was uh, one company is developing uh, sort of a brand new. They're just doing the research, but they say they think it, they think it looks promising, like a five G technology. Or then you have company two, which uh, which is it's not just research. They're actually you know got something they can show you, and it's advanced, but it's not it's not quite ready for market. Um, uh, but they, they look promising. And the third company is a company that has a new technology, but boy, it would be great if they could sell it at a super cheap price. And boy, it'd be great if the government could somehow, you know, you know, give uh, tax credits to, to, to people who buy, uh, you know, states, localities, companies to buy this, uh, to buy this technology. So you have sort of three different companies. Would all these companies, uh, should they all get money from your innovation fund or any? Well, I, I, I think the third one has already developed the technology. So it's not clear that you need a, you know, well, you can, you can help subsidize the purchase. Uh, I mean, you, 
you, you could do, but I, I, I don't think it's the kind of the, right. it's, not, it's, not research, it's not like research, it's not like the early stage research development where you think there's a market right. failure for. I mean, there may be other right, reasons. So number three, you're but, out. Okay, what about the other Yeah, two? but no, no, number one and number two. I'm I mean, trying to differentiate those... between like basic research and more like applied research. I guess that's my, that, this is my sort of rudimentary right. way of trying to get at that. Well, I mean, basic research has the biggest market failure. So that's the one where you know, we think that there is a strong reason for putting the money in. Um, but if you have a you know if you had a mission, so if there are particular things that you you know you thought there was a, like a, I don't know military need, need to kind of develop face recognition in you know, artificial intelligence to deal with the fact that Chinese are moving ahead of us for in drone technology, then that might be a reason for doing more near market research stuff because you know there there there's a you know an additional pressing need. But the pure economics is that you know you want to do the early the early market stuff where we think there's the, the biggest market failure. So that would be the criteria. Right. Because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are going to be like, "This sounds like uh, like this sounds like the Solyndra debacle during the Obama years." You know, where you know you know giving companies money. Um, I think that whole you know scenario has sort of been you know overplayed. But I, I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, sure, give give you know for basic research, fine, but anything beyond that." government should not be involved but you're saying because you're saying yes maybe if i'm if i'm and correct me if i'm wrong you're saying we should be funding basic research more but there's also these other things which you also have to fund more yeah well i mean the, you know, there's the, the, the to say there's only you know the line between basic research and applied applied research is not is not like you know the grand canyon <laughs> yeah. yeah you know they're, they're too they kind of blend together sure and you know you're gonna have to you have to make a decision based on a set of criteria about which one you fund or not. I mean, I, I would say yes, you want to push it towards basic, but there's going to be, you know, if, if there are these other missions, there's going to be some other criteria, and that might mean you push a little bit more on the, you know, the applied. But basic research would side. get more funding under your plan, right? That, absolutely. So why did the U.S. let this downshift in research funding happen to begin with, given how important it is? Well, that's a good, you know, that's that's a good that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I don't. I, you know, I don't know for sure. I, I think, I think as we kind of got, we got complacent. You know, I, I think you know, the, you know, the U.S. was so dominant, um, a certain amount of complacency probably set in, and we thought that you know, growth was going to continue anyway. And I, I think also there was maybe a view that the the private sector would step in and you know, do the kind of basic research which the, the the government started to move out of. But if you look at what's happened, you know, people who have looked at private sector research, if anything, it's um, become even more near market. So it's it's become even less basic. And that's unsurprising, right? Because the incentives are not, not really there. So I, I think it's that there's a, a certain amount of kind of complacency came in, especially, you know, with the end of the Cold War and, you know, the defeat of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, America was, you know, clearly number one and, and in many respects still is but you know if you're looking towards the future and you know i think that now is a good time now we can see there you know the, the rise of china and there's a the chinese are challenging us you know we i you know and other it should people, be that hard of a political sell i think given we have slow growth you know and we're supposed to have slow growth going forward even you know before the pandemic we have this rising competitor which seems to be throwing gobs of money you know at all these you know all these cutting edge technologies um Boy, if you can't sort of sell the idea now, then it, I think it just can't be sold. Well, you know, Eric Schmidt you know, made made the good point. I mean, you know, we all got complacent in the sense we saw you know, China's great at copying stuff, but they're not, you know, they're not really innovating, not pushing the frontier like America or the West does. And then, you know, I don't know, we, at some point <laughs> we've woken up to the fact, you know, I have it in my paper, that R&D intensity has overtaken France and the UK. They're, you know, going 
gung-ho with many of the advanced technologies like artificial intelligence so you know i think we we were you know we we got we got complacent we kind of thought that you know many of these countries are you know good at copying but not good at innovating good at diffusion but not pushing the frontier that's not true they're now you know they're, they're not as advanced as we are on average but they've caught up and in many places they're overtaking us and we i guess with 5g we're now seeing this as well so now is the right time now is the moment i think and i so i call for like we think of this as like you know a, you know a martial plan you know, now we're thinking about what we need to do um after the pandemic to get back to growth we should think not about the short-term things you know we should think a marshall plan for ourselves a marshall plan for america and to finish up do you have any concerns about the ability of the united states to implement this kind of plan especially given our response to the pandemic i i do i mean i think that you know we there are serious political issues with you know, the rise of polarization and the ability of the the state to to, to do things but i i don't think you know we should be too pessimistic i think that you know I, the way i think of it is the following you know it's often at times of crisis that you can get really big changes um and those changes can go can be bad as well as good you know after the first world war the, the whole um developed world retreated you know behind trade barriers and um you know there was a rise of extremism but after the second world war you know there was a there was the opposite happened the crisis actually galvanized people to realize well you know we do have serious problems a lot of independencies in the world and it, it became a it became a moment to kind of you know seize the initiative to do things differently so i do think there are huge problems and i don't underestimate the the, the problems of state capacity but i think you know in america we did this before we should never bet against america we did this before and we can do it again it's going to take a lot of effort it's going to take a lot of you know you know popular will to do that but i think we might be at a moment where people realize there is a challenge and realize that you know we can't we can't we can uh, pull together to make a difference and hold our politicians to account so you know it's not going to be easy but i do think it's possible my guest today has been john van reenen john thanks for coming on the podcast thank you